Good afternoon, uh, Zach Lucas, McCarthy Deming. Uh, just bringing us in on this uh, webinar on the Philippines and Japan as part of the regional talks on the governance and succession series. Just talk through the series. Uh, obviously, this is now the second of the regional talks. We've got one more, which is Malaysia and Thailand. Uh, that'll be a, a week, uh, uh, two weeks from now, actually. Um, so we're going to have the week next week off. And then on the 24th of September, we're going to wind up uh, the entire series with the single family office. And uh, it will start to be publicized, but the program for this will involve an analysis of the VCC legislation and the use of VCCs as family offices as compared to a ordinary uh, Singapore PTE. So the idea behind it is to do a comparison from a governance perspective. Uh, and we'll also um, look at uh, structuring a multifamily office using a VCC and look at if the families uh, wish to have a trust structure above, or what would be the correct approach? Uh, would it be a multi-fund trust or would it be separate trusts under a private trust company? And we'll look at some of the practical ramifications of holding a VCC through a trust. Um, as I say, we'll do the, the comparison so that the governance is teased out and then we'll end up with some analysis on the trust side. And we'll also uh, obviously invite um, Mr. Tassouf from uh, the Monetary Authority of Singapore to discuss broadly about the VCCs uh, future plans for the VCC and how it's getting on in terms of its take up and to talk some about the, uh, the grants that have been made to, to help with the adoption of the VCC as a, as a planning tool. So you will see on the chat, uh, I've, I've placed a link to the Malaysia Thailand talk, which is on the 23rd of September. So if you haven't already registered, then by all means, go through that link and that will take you to uh, the registration page. You can get going with that. Okay, now going back to today's session. So today we're dealing with Philippines and Japan. In terms of the uh, panelists, as usual, I'm very grateful to be joined by Spencer Su from the Monetary Authority of Singapore. Uh, I'll also be joined by uh, Joshua Pariso from uh, PJS Law, as well as Sushi Yoashi from uh, Mori Hamada Matsumoto in uh, Tokyo, Japan. And so these are all our panelists today dealing with the, the various issues. So from the agenda standpoint, we're going to run through the demographics of the uh, various uh, sort of business families in each of the regions. Look at the succession planning tools that are principally adopted. We'll look at the governance planning tools that are principally adopted in the jurisdictions. And then we'll look at an interesting area for these jurisdictions, which is the ability for international structures to be used as part of the planning process. And um, this, this will be an interesting discussion because there, there are um, some, some sort of scope to have an involvement from uh, jurisdictions or international financial centers such as Singapore and obviously Hong Kong. Then we'll look at the demand uh, for domestic family offices and run through how that's looking in each of the jurisdictions as we sit. And then finally, we'll, we'll wind up with the uh, demand for international family offices. And here we will concentrate uh, specifically on the Singapore single family office and, and look at whether or not the families in, in each of uh, Philippines and Japan may utilize a Singapore single family office for their international structuring and planning. So just looking at the demographics, um, what I'll do is I'll ask um, sort of Joshua and uh, Sushi to help us to go through this. 
The questions are really, um, as, as we've done in the previous series, which generation is typically in control of the business families in each of their jurisdictions? The average number of family members that will succeed to the business, because this gives us an idea of the level of complexity that the family will face. And then how soon is this likely to occur? So how urgent is this in each of the different um, in markets? So I'll ask Joshua to, to, to kick us off. And so Joshua, in terms of the, the generation that's typically in control now, are we looking at still first generation businesses or are we looking at third generation? Where are we in terms of the, the Philippines as a, as a generalization? Sure, Zach. Uh, just a bit of a background on the Philippines uh, family uh, business uh, profiles. Uh, in the Philippines, 80% of the businesses are family owned or controlled. Uh, I think uh, in one of the research uh, done by Credit Suisse, uh, the Philippines ranked 11 globally in terms of uh, family run firms. So right now, uh, at least two of the large uh, family enterprise in the Philippines are now on their sixth or even later generation. However, majority of the family businesses now in the Philippines are still being currently controlled by the second generation. Yeah. Right, right. And the, the, what will succeed them? What's the number of um, family members that we anticipate that will succeed in the third, the cousin generation? How many do we, do we think on average will succeed? Okay. So since we are looking at the second generation as currently the majority in uh, running the, the family business, uh, the successors being the third generation, uh, the siblings uh, on the second generation level are usually around five to seven. So with the third generation getting involved, who would be now the cousins, the first cousins, uh, they would number around uh, 15 to 21 in the average, uh, because uh, each uh, sibling would approximately have an average uh, number of children of three. So uh, right. we are looking at the 15 to 21 uh, uh, family members in the average. Right. And do you think that, you know, one of the biggest issues that we've encountered uh, with many of the family businesses handing off is the next generation is simply not interested in joining the business. They don't, they don't want to do it, they want to do something else. Do, do, you, see, do you see that happening in the Philippines? Oh yes, uh, I have seen that in some of my clients. Uh, the child, some of the children or e even majority of the children not being interested in joining the business and doing something else. Uh, at most, uh, in some of my other clients, there would be at least one child who would be involved in the business, but there would even be times that that child would even be sort of forced into uh, getting involved in the business. Right, right. And how urgent is all of this in terms of timing the, the second gen? Are they in their 70s or 80s or where, where are they in terms of the, the, the succession here? Sure. Uh, the second generation profile in the Philippines is uh, typically there. They are in the 50s to 60s uh, age bracket. So looking at that uh, statistics, uh, succession uh, by the third generation uh, should be anticipated within the next uh, 10 years. Right, right. So it's not a burning, urgent issue for the family at the moment, but it's something that's obviously um, on the horizon. That's right. Right, okay. And Sushi, from your perspective, 
How does it look in Japan in terms of the, the generation in charge? Where, where are we? Uh, yes, uh, actually, you know, the situation in Japan is very similar to that in Philippines. So actually, my, you know, most of my clients are second generation and they are thinking, uh, their concern is how to ask, you know, their parents to re retire from the business. Right. And uh, yeah, that is the biggest issue for the second generation. And uh, also number of the, you know, family members, uh, you know, uh, decreasing because, you know, the population in Japan is starting to decrease. So right. number of children are also decreasing. So in many cases, just uh, one or two or three children are discussing, you know, about the success. Right. And in terms of how uh, interested the, the children are in, in joining the business, do you see also the similar drop-off with a, a lot of the children absolutely having no interest in the family business? Right. Uh, I see that cases, actually. And uh, yes, many people are not starting to lose uh, the interest uh, in the business. So they are doing, uh, you know, uh, totally different work. But in, in Japan, in many cases, they will come back to the family business uh, maybe 10 or 20 years later. That's always very often, happen, very often, because they, even if they start to another business, they usually go back to the original family business. That, that is very common. Right. I mean, in terms of the urgency of, you know, helping families with the transition, obviously in the Philippines, the, the, the magnitude of the, the, the people involved will increase the complexity in, in Japan, probably the changing of the guard is, is probably going to be the same amount of people involved. But, but what, when, when are we anticipating that from a, from a Japanese perspective? Is this within the next 10 years that we expect that? Right. So in, in Japan, there are two ways to, for the succession. One is inheritance, and another way is a kind of basically gift or sale of the shares. But uh, in Japan, from a you know, tax based on tax reasons, uh, inheritance is more preferred. So that's why we have to usually wait for 10 years or 20 years for the succession. Right, right, okay. Looking at the actual succession plan, and, and the questions I'll ask is, do families typically trade in corporate partnership or other forms? So what platform do they tend to use in terms of the legal arrangement? Do families typically transfer the business on death or during lifetime? And there's obviously some, some tax issue there from a Japanese standpoint. Do families typically structure succession via use of a trust or other arrangement? Both Japan and Philippines has uh, domestic trust laws, so this is open to the families. Uh, do families transfer the business to the next generation in equal shares or do they prefer the oldest son do they exclude daughters? How, how is it typically done uh, within the family? And then finally, are there any community of property or forced airship clawback claims that could disrupt a transition of the business such that it could include people that perhaps were, were not intended and uh, probably won't add much value to the business? So uh, fair list there. So Josh, if you can sort of work your way through that in a, in a sort of casual way. Um, do they typically trade in, in corporate form or partnership in, in Philippines? Sure. 
uh, in the Philippines, the more popular or preferred vehicle is still the corporate form, I, I should say. Uh, corporate vehicles are often used by the larger businesses uh, and even the medium-sized businesses. But that is not to say that uh, there are other businesses, uh, more particularly the smaller businesses would still be uh, in the form of, of partnership or even sole proprietorships. Because of probably because of of the uh, the size of the business, but uh, as I said, the more popular vehicle is still the corporate uh, vehicle. Right. Yeah. So in terms of uh, transferring the business uh, to the second generation, uh, typically majority of the businesses here still transfer the business on death. Uh, really. My observation is that uh, the first generation or the patriarchs or the matriarchs they usually are involved in the business up to the last breath. So really? they, they would usually be involved. Uh, but for the larger businesses, uh, they would normally already uh, involve the second generation slow, slowly by slowly uh, into the businesses. But for, I would say for the smaller businesses, uh, this is not the scenario. So uh, transfer businesses would usually still happen uh, upon death. Of, right. of the patriarch or the matriarch. Right, right. So no real room for complicated structuring and putting it into trusts and, and, and doing things like that. It's basically going to go through a testamentary route. Yes, that's still the, the usual route, testamentary route, or even worse for those who have not been able to prepare their last will and testament. Right. The, the, the law kicks in in terms of uh, inheritance law. Yeah. Right, right. And in, in terms of the community property forced heir, Probably these things haven't even been considered then. That's correct. Uh, in the Philippines, uh, the default property regime is what we call uh, absolute community of property. So yeah. that means that uh, when you have a, a couple, spouses, husband and wife, uh, when you say that they are under the absolute community of property, everything that they put into the marriage at the time of the marriage uh, are divided equally. They are shared equally. So without any structuring or without any uh, prenuptial agreements in place, uh, that is usually a complication when one of the spouses die because yeah. automatically uh, the other spouse would have 50% of, right. of the estate immediately, right. immediately upon death. So that is uh, uh, by operation of law. Right. Uh, 50% is already for, for the other spouse. Right, right. And if they do plan on the succession, do they, do they generally favor the male sort of eldest heir or how, how do they generally, or is it equal across all of the family members regardless of gender? Okay. Uh, typical of the uh, Filipino businessman here, especially the, the larger businesses would be Filipino Chinese yes. uh, tycoons. So as we all know, under in uh, Chinese culture, uh, the uh, the male uh, child, spe especially if you are a uh, the eldest child who is a male child, is still preferred uh, right. to run the business. So we, we still see tinges of those uh, in in the businesses here in the Philippines. Uh, they would prefer uh, the male over the, uh, the female uh, uh, children. Right, right, okay. And uh, Sushi, from your perspective, how does this sort 
sort of list of, of queries on the succession planning. How does it look from a Japanese standpoint? Oh, uh, yes, in Japan, it's very similar. You know, uh, Japanese people generally prefer uh, corporate yeah. form because I think the biggest reason is you know, tax because uh, corporation tax rate is around 30%. But, you know, if we use a partnership, uh, the partnership is uh, transparent for Japanese tax purposes. Right. And if individual uh, is a partnership members, they are subject to, you know, individual income tax and the applicable tax rate is up to 55%. Right. So I think that's the biggest reason for Japanese people to prefer corporate form. Right. And uh, yeah, in, in Japan, you know, they usually transfer the business on death uh, right. rather than the, you know, during the lifetime. Because uh, if we transfer the business on death, uh, inheritance tax will be imposed. And if we transfer the business during lifetime, it's subject to the gift tax. But in Japan, the tax rate for inheritance and gift is almost the same. Right. So to defer that, you know, the timing of the taxation, uh, the, you know, trans transfer the business on death is more, more preferred in Japan. Right. And uh, yeah, so in, in Japan, trust, uh, tra traditionally, the trust was not so commonly used. But uh, recently, many you know uh, professionals, including me, uh, recommending the clients to use a trust. Right. So, in uh, you know, uh, in terms of the succession planning, mm -hmm. uh, the trust is uh, more and more popular recently. Actually, it's very useful from uh, legal and tax perspectives in Japan. Right. And, and the community and sort of clawback. How how do you deal with that? Mm -hmm. context yeah so it's uh we have a very strict rules about the community property and uh, post their clawback in japan so in this context uh the trust is very useful in japan because if we use a trust we can separate you know controlling rights from economic rights right. and uh, so if we give the economic right to the spouses or other family members, you know, their rights under the community property or, you know, clawback, uh, post their clawback are satisfied. But uh, voting rights or controlling rights uh, can be held by only one person, right. even after, you know, divorce or inheritance. So that, in, that, you know, trust is very useful in that perspective. Right. And then, Joshua, you, you have trust laws in, in the Philippines. Do, do families not utilize the, the trust laws for these purposes, for these business successions, in the same way as we're seeing emerging in Japan? Okay. Uh, we do have trust laws, uh, but uh, not, not very specific. We more or less just uh, follow the trust provisions under our civil code. But uh, my observation is that... Uh, while trust arrangements are not very common in family businesses, the larger businesses actually already use this vehicle. Uh, I've seen clients use the irrevocable trust uh, vehicle yes. uh, as way of uh, 
structuring the succession planning. In mm -hmm. that way, uh, the assets are taken out of uh, the estate already of, right. uh, of the person or the patriarch. And they immediately they are considered or treated as gifts right. uh, at the time of uh, putting the, the assets into the trust. And so this is just subject to a gift tax. And uh, recently, because of the amendment of the tax law in the Philippines, yes. uh, inheritance law and gift or donation uh, taxes uh, and uh, inheritance taxes are almost the same or, or they, they are at the same rate already. So right. there is no in incentive now to, to prefer the other one. So right. uh, with that, uh, if, if that, if the trust vehicle gives more flexibility in terms of uh, managing the assets, then uh, the larger businesses prefer that as a vehicle. Right, right. Okay. Okay. From the governance planning perspective, now th this area is um, really principally dealing with um, how families create frameworks so that the next generation can actually work together in, in, a, in, a, in a better way so that they avoid, you know, the pitfalls of uh, people misunderstanding, people who want to control, not being in positions of control, people taking money out of the business when they shouldn't be. So this is all about, you know, governance is really about preparing the next gen to work together successfully, right? So do families create specific governance frameworks to help them to achieve this? Do families take into account the best practice corporate governance codes that are mostly promulgated through the listing rules in, in you know, all of the jurisdictions that have significant stock exchanges? So some of the rules that we would typically see in good corporate governance would be things like the need for independent directors, separation of chairman and CEO roles so you don't have you know you don't have a unified position that there's no accountability between the two enhanced transparency and disclosure of information across the business to the shareholders or up into the trust and the beneficiaries if you have one enhanced related party transaction rules so that family members actually understand what conflict of interest means many times we take it for granted as lawyers but for a layperson these are obscure terms director remuneration related disclosure rules how do we control family members extracting profits from a business through salary effectively independent auditors so how do we make sure that there's financial hygiene across the business these are just some of the rules that you'll see typically on these um, sort of best corporate governance rules that are on the listing requirements enhanced minority shareholder protections and then if we do have corporate governance rules in a jurisdiction or we do see that families are adopting this approach to prepare the next generation, where do they put these rules? Do they have them in a shareholder agreement? Is it in the constitution or do they try and embed them into these trusts that, that are starting to be used? So I think, uh, Sushi, if you can, you can help us with this first, um, in terms of corporate governance frameworks, are families starting to adopt this? Do they understand the need for the next generation to have something that they can use to, to, to help them to be successful? Yeah, actually, in Japan, you know, the traditionally, uh, Japanese family governance framework only focus on the family matter only. That's a tradition. But uh, recently, uh, there is some other new trends. Uh, in the case of the you know, listed companies, so if the family is a you know a majority shareholder of the listed corporation, uh, some you know family governance framework. Uh, 
thinking, uh, thinking of, you know, not only family matters, but also, you know, minority shareholders, mm. you know. So the I think the purpose of the corporate governance cause is to protect the interest of the minority shareholders. Mm. So some, you know, new, you know, family governance framework starting to incorporate uh, the, you know, the concept of the corporate governance cause, including, you know, uh, independent directors or, you know, enforced creative party transaction rules. So those, some parts of the, you know, or some concepts of the corporate governance cause are starting to be incorporated right. in, you know, family governance framework. So that, that is a Japanese trend, I guess. Yes. And, and where do they typically put them? Is it in the constitutional documents or the memorandum and articles of the company or is it in the shareholder agreements or where, where do they generally end up, these, these corporate governance rules? Uh, the shareholders agreement is you know, common because right. in, you know, corporate constitutions or you know, articles of incorporation is always simple. That is the Japanese style. Right. So many you know, details terms and conditions are provided in the shareholders agreement. Right. But recently, as I said, the trust is uh, more preferred than the shareholder agreement because, you know, if we think that 100 year planning, trust is uh, more, you know, stable from the you know, legal perspective. So yes. uh, trust is more and more preferred recently. Right, right. Okay, Josh, from your perspective, um, and how are families taking these sorts of things seriously for next-gen planning? Are they actually starting to look carefully at how the next generation can work together? Yes, uh, I would say that uh, governance frameworks are pretty much popular on the top uh, family businesses, meaning the bigger uh, businesses. Right. Uh, Probably because uh, coincidentally, uh, these uh, large family businesses here in the Philippines would usually be listed companies in the stock exchange. So right. uh, being, a li being listed companies, they are really governed by stringent rules. Yes. Uh, we have our securities regulation code, right. which uh, often than not would require all of these uh, best practice corporate governance codes. So they tend to already incorporate these uh, governance frameworks uh, in, in, the, in the business. However, uh, in, in the smaller businesses or even the medium-sized businesses, uh, there's still no, usually the, the, the situation is there are no governance frameworks in place. Or if ever there are uh, governance frameworks that are in place, I would say these are poor governance practices. So, right. uh, so this is the difference basically between the larger businesses, uh, the listed companies, and, and the smaller and the smaller businesses. Right. So, in terms of the vehicle uh, for those with uh, ha those businesses that have governance frameworks, uh, the shareholder agreement is the more popular vehicle. Right. Uh, Corporate constitutions are usually uh, seen in large businesses or large family businesses or extended family businesses. So uh, I've seen some of those, at least in my clients, I think I have two or three who would have a family constitution, but these are more the bigger uh, businesses. Right, right. Because that, that's what I was, I was going to get onto, which is obviously family constitutions are becoming incredibly popular. Uh, particularly across Southeast Asia, as families look through. Um, 
in terms of the questions that I have on constitutions, it's really getting a feel from a sort of Philippine standpoint and Japanese standpoint, how much of these things being adopted or looked at by families, how popular are constitutions? Uh, what are the legal implications of a constitution? And then finally, who typically is preparing this? Uh, and I, I, what we can generally see in the marketplace is if practitioners, uh, lawyers, let's say, or, or uh, professional accountants are not talking about these uh, particular frameworks with families, then it tends to sort of default to business schools filling the void. And you have academic business school uh, approaches to how families should create their constitutional framework. So just wanted to get a feel, how popular are these things? What are the ramifications of adopting uh, a constitution? And particularly, who are drafting these documents in your market? Is it lawyers, notaries, or is it uh, a, a sort of business school academic? So I think Joshua, if you can, you can kick us off on this one. Sure. Uh, so uh, as I've uh, previously mentioned, uh, some of the bigger businesses here in the Philippines have already adopted family constitutions or family charters. Uh, and I've seen uh, two or three of my clients having family constitutions. Mm -hmm. So I think it's getting, uh, uh, getting ground here in the Philippines. Uh, and uh, I'd say that probably in the next few years, more and more businesses would probably uh, employ family constitutions uh, in their businesses. In terms of uh, legal implications, uh, family constitutions are usually just uh, a two-pager or three-page document uh, that usually uh, governs how succession is done in, in, in a family-run business or how uh, income is uh, is divided. So in terms of, of legal implication, I would say that in the Philippine setting, a family constitution would be in the nature of a contract between the family members. Right. Especially if this document would be a signed document by, by the family members or, right. or all of the stakeholders, you can treat it as a contract. And uh, being a contract, then its provisions are enforceable in, in a court of law. Right. Uh, because uh, it's governed by, uh, by contract law. So right. uh, any breach of, of the provision can be a cause of action by, by any of the family members. In terms of preparation of these family constitutions, I'd say that the, the first initiative would usually come from the family members first. They would express their preference on what provisions would uh, be in place in these family constitutions. And the advice of the lawyers would come next. So right. they'd, they'd vet uh, these family constitutions, whether they would be in accordance with law or uh, public policy. So, yeah. but, but I've seen family constitutions that have, not, that have been prepared without uh, advice of lawyers. So right. in, in those kinds of, of instances, uh, when uh, trouble or conflict arise and they invoke the family constitutions, as I said, you can treat that as a, as a contract and uh, if there are problematic provisions in the family constitution, then we have a rule in, in, in Philippine contract law that the law is deemed written into every contract. So if the provision therein violates any provision of law or, or, or public policy, then that gets to be voided. But the, the rest of the provisions that would not be problematic would, would still be in place. 
You see, the popular perception of, of family charters is that they're not legally binding and they don't have contractual force. A good family constitution would, would have, where it's being drafted correctly, will say the family should agree by way of a shareholder agreement the following provisions, or the family should amend their constitutional documents on the company to reflect what's being agreed. Um, a, a poorly drafted version of the constitution won't say any of that. It will just ramble on talking through the issues. And in, in the Philippine context, it's tantamount to creating a contractual obligation between the shareholders. Yes. In effect, right? Yes. So in that case, do you, I mean, how, how likely is it that families will inadvertently get involved in constitutions that actually have legal force and have no clue that they're actually creating legally binding obligations? Well, that can really happen. Uh, I would say in the smaller businesses, uh, because they would usually, the, the normal course of, of things in smaller businesses is the matriarch or the patriarch dictates. Whatever they say is law of the family business. So they usually wouldn't mind uh, getting advice from, from lawyers or, or financial advisors as to how sound the provisions of of the family constitution is so right. uh, the, the probability of complications down the road is really high yeah. right right okay and Sushi, from your side how do you see the use of or the development of the use of charters in, in a japanese context are these things popular sure yeah it's very popular you know the traditionally you know many japanese families have you know kind of family charters but uh, it's very simple and it's just a one page document and uh, usually it has it provides only maybe five or six articles and it's not legally binding and uh, nobody signs on that document mm. so that is a traditional way in japan but uh, recently uh some you know big families are starting to you know enter into some agreements or contracts mm. you know among the family members that is a new trend right. and we call it, you know, kind of a family governance agreement yeah. or family governance contract. And basically that agreement is a legally binding. And of course, basically all family members will sign right. uh, that agreement. That is a new trend in Japan. And uh, in terms of the, you know, parties to prepare those documents, uh, in many cases, uh such new agreement type of you know family charters are prepared by lawyers right. and also many lawyers are working with uh, business school academics mm. and also outside consultants yeah so basically we are working together those you know uh, professionals to pre prepare the you know new type of uh, you know family charters right so how do we get um, a new family member, let's say we have a share transfer on one of the shareholders death and we have an, a new shareholder being introduced through the estate. Mm -hmm. um, how do we get them to agree to this family charter? If they, if they say, I'm not interested in this, I have no part in making it up. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't reflect my values. Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm not prepared to sign this. Does that mean that we never register them as a shareholder? Mm -hmm. well, how, how is this done? Yeah, that problem is very common in Japan. Right. If we use a shareholders agreement, but mm -hmm. if we use a trust agreement, 
that problem can be avoided right. because beneficial rights is automatically transferred. Exactly. The, yeah, or sons or daughters. Right. So from that perspective, trust arrangement or trust agreement uh, is very useful in Japan and it's more and more, you know, preferred. Right, right. Joshua, from your, your perspective, um, how do they enforce it against new shareholders? Sorry, Josh, you, you, you oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry about that. In terms of enforceability of these uh, family constitutions to, to new shareholders, yeah. uh, actually, is it, it is something that is yet to be tested in, in Philippine jurisprudence. Uh, right. So there is, I, I don't think there has been a case which has uh, been ruled uh, by the courts uh, on, on this issue. Right. But uh, I would say that uh, because a new shareholder was technically not part of that family constitution, yeah. then it's arguable that they can actually not follow the, uh, the provisions of that uh, family constitution. And uh, by virtue of inheritance law, uh, if that particular new shareholder just really inherits the shares of, yeah. of uh, the father or the mother, then uh, he gets the shares in the company by operation of law. And I think uh, that cannot be, uh, that the family constitution cannot override right. the provision of law yeah. that uh, provides that he would own the chair by, right. by succession rights. Right. Yes. right, got it. Okay, very good. Looking at the international side now, it really the, the interest here is um, is it possible to structure succession to a domestic uh, family business using an offshore entity or arrangement, offshore trust, offshore companies? And if it's possible, what are the main considerations? So, especially from your perspective, is it possible for a Singapore trust to be used in a domestic Japanese context to assist in the succession planning to a Japanese business? Is that possible? Right, if, of course it's possible, and uh, you know, in the past, many Japanese, you know, wealthy individuals prefer uh, using the corporations rather than the trusts. So they usually set up, uh, you know, foreign, foreign corporations in the past. But you know, we Japan has a CFC rules, which is an anti-tax haven tax tax regime. So if under that tax regime, you know, if we use, uh, you know, foreign uh, corporations, the shareholders in Japan are subject to the you know, Japanese income tax. Right. So it's very problematic for the Japanese taxpayers. Hmm. So that's why many Japanese, you know, taxpayers or Japanese wealthy individuals uh, prefer using the trust, offshore trust, because trust is basically, you know, transparent for Japanese tax purposes. And we can avoid the issue of the Japanese CFC rules. So by avoiding, avo avoiding those tax issues, uh, you know, Japanese wealthy individuals can benefit from right. Singapore trust. Right, right. Joshua, from your side, is it a similar story from a, a Philippine perspective in using a Singapore trust to help to structure a, a domestic family business is it possible yes i think uh it's legally possible to, to structure it this way uh 
some businesses uh, here, more especially the, the larger businesses have already BVI companies or Hong Kong companies that, that are in place as part of the tax management of, of, of their businesses. So I would say that they would be open to uh, considering offshore arrangements uh, for, for the business succession. But similar to, uh, to Japan, the main consideration is tax. Uh, tax, of course, is the main consideration. Uh, under Philippine taxation law, uh, Filipinos are taxed from all income uh, within and outside of the Philippines. So we would like, probably, uh, Filipino businessmen would like to see whether these offshore entities or offshore arrangement would be tax efficient in such a way that uh, uh, they can be used as some sort of a tax haven. And yeah. probably if it's seen that way, then it will be an attractive vehicle for them. From a, from a Philippine standpoint, you don't currently have CFC rules, is that correct? No, no, we don't have right. And CFC is there rules. any suggestion that you will implement CFC rules as part of this BEPS rollout of jurisdictions trying to equalize? Is there any suggestion of that? Uh, in the immediate horizon, I, I don't think there are considerations for that. Yes. Right, right. So in both cases, we, you can look at structuring uh, businesses. Not only, obviously, if the businesses are internationally spread, then it's, it's easier, obviously, to structure through a, a, an offshore trust, whether it's based in, in Singapore or, or elsewhere. Um, you just have to be careful from the Japanese standpoint that you, you, you structure it correctly for the tax to not bite on the CFC. And from a, from a Philippine perspective, um, you're, 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 are you careful about round tripping and, and having sort of uh, how, how assets will be dealt with coming back in from the yes. international structure? Is that one of your considerations? That's also a consideration because uh, any income, uh, even if, it, if it's income coming from a different jurisdiction, is still taxable uh, because of your citizenship. So whatever income you, you derive from yeah. whatever source from anywhere in the world would be in the uh, radar of tax authorities. Right, right. And just final question on this, from a Japanese standpoint, do you have any foreign ownership restrictions when it comes to domestic companies? So foreigners can't own more than 50% of a domestic company or can foreigners own 100% of a domestic company? Yeah, in Japan, it is possible for the foreign investors or foreign shareholders to have the 100% in the Japanese corporation. It's possible. But recently, uh, Japanese Foreign Exchange Act was amended and uh, inbound investment uh, a little bit you know, restricted under the new uh, Foreign Exchange Act. So, you know, there is a you know, trade war between China and the U.S. now, and the Japanese government has a similar you know, concern, and they recently amended you know, uh, exchange act, foreign exchange act, to that effect. Right, right. And Joshua, from your perspective, any sort of uh, foreign ownership controls in the Philippines so that you would restrict the amount a foreigner could own on a domestic Philippine company? Okay, as a general rule, uh, foreign, uh, a foreign company can, can own uh, shares in a domestic company, 100%, uh, except that uh, for those industries that have been specified to be nationalized. So right. we would have graduation of, of business or industries that are required to have 100% Filipino ownership. 
right. are uh, businesses that would require uh, that would allow foreign ownership up to forty percent, sixty percent Filipinos. But in terms of if you're just looking at a holding company, yeah. uh, I don't see uh, much restrictions on on foreign ownership in terms of a holding company. Right, right. Okay. Okay. So turning our attention to the family office, the, the, the sort of advent and growth of family offices, as we all know, as families become a lot more um, sort of wealthy, there comes a point in time when they start to develop a balanced approach from the business. And now they, they start looking at non-business wealth. And uh, sometimes the non-business wealth is embedded into the business and managed out of the business. But Generally, there's a, a, a sort of um, a maturation here where they generally separate the two going forward. So from a domestic standpoint, is there a demand for family offices uh, uh, currently? Is it growing? And which is more prevalent in the marketplace? And I make the distinction between a multifamily office, an investment office, and a single family office. A multifamily office is a commercial undertaking where effectively, it's an external asset manager that's professionally managing family wealth. So it's not a collection in this instance of families coming together and pooling their resources into one family office. This is a professionalized approach to managing um, the financial assets of various clients. An investment office is put in there because it's really the profile doesn't fit a family office in the context that it's not collective family wealth. It's usually an entrepreneur or a, a, a relatively young individual who's managing their wealth and they're, they're doing it in a professionalized approach and not taking the uh, advantage of, let's say, the various private banks that are available. In this context, the single family office is what we would say a bona fide family office. So this is collective family wealth being centrally managed, maybe with many branches of the family being involved. Uh, and that's, that's the distinction. So in terms of uh, looking at it from the say, Philippine standpoint, which is more prevalent right now? What do we see growing? Is it multifamily offices, investment offices, or bonafide single family offices. Okay. Uh, in the Philippine setting, I would say that uh, multi multiple family offices and investment offices are the more popular ones. Uh, we do not see a lot of single family office set up. I think uh, I've searched and uh, uh, the horizon and I think I was only able to, to see probably two or three uh, single family office attempts uh, at structuring uh, family businesses. So it's really more of the multi-family office and investment offices. And uh, I also observed that uh, some of the accounting firms, the bigger accounting firms would uh, offer these, these services in terms of advising in, on multi-family office and investment. So it, because uh, it, uh, it makes sense for, for the businesses because normally they would have independent auditors already uh, engaged by them uh, to uh, perform the independent audits and they would already be familiar with, with the financials of the businesses. So right. it makes sense to uh, give advice further on, on investments. Right, right. And Sushi, from your side, what do we see going on in, in Tokyo? Right, so actually in, in Japan, you know, the concept of the family office is very new. Mm. So to, in Japanese people. So, Traditionally, you know, uh, Japanese families, uh, you know, just select only one employee, you know, right. uh, you know, and ask him or her to support the family. 
So, but it's just one employee of the com company. So, but uh, you know, recently, you know, some big, bigger, you know, families are starting to set up, uh, you know, their family offices, and they employ outside professionals, and uh, those outside, you know, professionals are working for the family. That is sometimes called, you know, family office. But uh, still, you know, the concept is very new. And uh, so that's why maybe we don't see multi-family offices in Japan, and we sometimes see single family office, but it's uh, not so common at this moment. And another problem is, you know, uh, th these family offices are subject to Japanese financial regulations, you know, because they uh, have some discretion to invest in the financial portfolio on behalf of the family. So that action is subject to the Japanese regulations. So that may be another reason uh, that, you know, these type of family offices are not so common in Japan. Right, right. Okay, okay, well, that's helpful. I think from the, this is transitioning to the international family office. And what I'll do is we'll enter into a discussion around the, um, the sort of, uh, demand for international family offices from the, the high net worth families in each of your jurisdictions. But what I will do is invite Spencer to take us through one of the more prominent jurisdictions in, in sort of up and coming in terms of the family office space, which is the Singapore single family office. And it's, um, it's sort of stratospheric growth over the last few years in terms of use. And I'd ask invite Spencer to talk through some of the aspects on the single family office in Singapore, and then we can talk generally about the demand for international family offices from each of your regions. So Spencer, if I'd invite you to, um, to make some remarks on this. Right, thanks very much, uh, Zach, and also to Joshua and Atsushi for the very useful uh, sharing early on. I think through the discussion, I've had a better understanding of uh, you know, the, the family governance as well as corporate governance and family office landscape uh, in, in each of your locations. And uh, uh, indeed, like, like you guys have mentioned, you know, the concept of a family office is uh, something that is very new uh, in Asia. And uh, we are just starting to see uh, uh, family offices becoming an important uh, concept of uh, uh, wealth planning and succession planning among, amongst uh, the business uh, families. Uh, over here in Singapore, um, I think there has been a very strong interest uh, in, in this area as well. And we have seen um, uh, interest coming from uh, families from uh, uh, around the whole uh, APEC region, as well as a selected uh, number of uh, family offices from uh, the US and the UK. And uh, based on the feedback from uh, many of these family offices, they like the uh, the strong rule of law, the financial economic stability that Singapore provides. And on top of that, it's also the, the high uh, you know, quality of living, high standards of living, uh, because uh, families uh, typically want to be co-located uh, with their uh, uh, family offices. And hence, I think uh, as a result of these factors, we have seen uh, the number of uh, family offices grow by about five times uh, between the 2017 to 2019. Uh, amongst which uh, I think we have seen a few um, uh, Japanese uh, family offices that have established here. And um, I think in terms of Filipino families, uh, probably one or two. Uh, yeah, and I think that's kind of uh, reflective of the, the situation uh, in, in each of your, your locations. Uh, and I think one, one point that um, 
uh, that, that, that comes across for me is that, you know, international family offices tend to be uh, useful uh, for families which tend to have, um, you know, become more international in nature, uh, be it in terms of uh, the nature of their business, uh, it has expanded beyond uh, their existing borders, or um, maybe the, the family members are located in different parts of the world. Uh, they could be, you know, uh, the, the family is based in Asia, but the children uh, study uh, in the UK and they have investments in the US. So uh, for, for such families, it, it makes sense for them to have an uh, international family office. And um, I think earlier on, uh, it was also highlighted that, you know, uh, areas such as tax efficiency uh, would be uh, an important area of consideration, uh, as well as also uh, the ability to, um, you know, uh, move your assets under uh, within the trust structure. Uh, the, that's also where uh, Singapore uh, has, has some form of, uh, uh, you know, attractiveness to, to family offices, uh, given that uh, on our end, we do offer um, uh, tax exemption uh, incentives uh, for, for families that set up their family offices here. So uh, uh, this would be more uh, popularly known as the 13X and the 13R schemes. Uh, essentially, it allows the family office's investment uh, to be tax exempted uh, for as long as the management of these assets are being conducted out of Singapore. So essentially, uh, the family has to uh, just set up a, a family office uh, uh, in Singapore to manage these assets. Uh, and then uh, if they meet the criteria of the of the award, then they can uh, uh, avail themselves of this tax exemption. And the criteria of the awards would be um, uh, uh, some elements such as uh, total expenditure, you're expected to spend about 200,000 Sing dollars uh, as uh, on an annual basis. Uh, and also there are some professional headcount requirements, uh, having, um, for example, three investment professionals uh, for the um, 13X uh, incentive and also a minimum uh, asset under management, which is uh, currently set at about uh, 50 million uh, Sing dollars uh, to qualify for the 13X. So that's one uh, aspect which is attractive to uh, family offices. And also the other aspect is, um, you know, if you look at the context of a trust, so uh, taking, in con taking into consideration uh, the CFC uh, laws in, in Japan, uh, then, uh, you know, a trust structure would be a viable structure uh, for uh, holding the assets of, an, of a family that, you know, wants to set up an international family office so that, you know, it doesn't get implicated in the, the CFC regulations. And then, um, you know, the trust can be structured in such a way that the, the assets can still be managed uh, by, by the family office or if that there is interest over there, you know, the, the families can also choose for uh, these assets to be managed by uh, professional uh, managers. I think I'll just pause here to see if there's any, uh, any questions or, or views from, from our panel here, or maybe from uh, some of the uh, other uh, uh, viewers of today's webinar. And what the, one, one aspect I thought we could talk about was, um, you know, Spencer just mentioned that Sushi, uh, that having a trust structure was more uh, efficient from a, a Japanese standpoint. And I would just ask, in, in terms of 13X, if we just had a trust with effectively a fund management company providing services to the trust, 
would that be something that would be entertained for a 13x application is that is that possible um yeah so uh this is uh, 13x uh, essentially uh, i think what it requires is that um uh, um, I, I think also I think this is useful to to, to share more about the, the difference between the 13R and the 13X. Mm. So in, in the context of a 13R, uh, the the entity that's holding on to the uh, investment assets needs to be a company which is registered in Singapore. Yeah. Uh, whereas uh, for the 13X, there is no restriction on the type of legal entity uh, that can be used to hold these assets, which means that. Uh, the trust structure can be used uh, to hold the assets uh, that belongs to the family. Uh, and then in terms of the manager, uh, because you don't want to have a, a so-called a, a company which is established, which could you know, um, attract uh, implications on the CFC front, then they could appoint a professional manager. Uh, this could be uh, either, uh, for example, a, a, a a fund manager or even a, a private bank uh, could be the appointed manager uh, for this um, uh, trust structure. And then in that sense, uh, they will be able to benefit from the 13x uh, incentive uh, and, and without having to set up a company. Right. And then, Sushi, do you see um, a growing demand for international family offices from a, from a Japanese standpoint? So, do, do you think that these things are are going to be helpful going forward in terms of the, the facility that's being allowed. That's right. So I think, you know, this, you know, international family of structure will be very useful or helpful for Japanese families because um, I think this international family office is not subject to the Japanese regulations. So it only subject to Singapore regulations. So that may be very helpful uh, for Japanese investors. And uh, as you, you know, discussed, uh, the point is uh, we should not use a corporation in the international family structure from a Japanese uh, tax point of view. Because uh, as I said, if we use a company or a corporation, that is subject to Japanese CFC. Right. So we uh, can only use uh, the trust only. So that's why I think, you know, we, if we choose the 13x structure, so that should, should work for Japanese families. And what's the, uh, the attributes of the trust? What does it, does it need to have? Is it fully discretionary in terms of the beneficiaries or does, do, do they, the trust, does the trust have to create income interests, what we would call a life interest? Or what's the uh, attributes of the trust? So I think uh, the in terms of the, the structure of the trust, there is quite a good uh, amount of flexibility um, in, in terms of uh, you know being able to qualify uh, uh, for the award uh, under a 13x structure. Um, I think uh, firstly, uh, the trust should be holding assets in excess of uh, 15 million Singapore dollars. Uh, and then uh, on the um, investment professional front, if it's managed by a single family office, you need to have three investment professionals. Uh, if uh, it is managed by a professional manager, then uh, the same rule applies. But I think in the context of a professional manager, they, they tend to have uh, usually more than three investment professionals. So they would be uh, able to meet the requirement. So then it boils down to the annual um, expenditure requirement, which is uh, 200,000 uh, Singapore dollars. So that could be in terms of uh, fees, 
being paid to uh, the professional fund manager uh, or uh, any related corporate uh, secretariat uh, services which are being rendered. Uh, or, yeah, if, uh, I think it, even in terms of, let's say in the context of the trust, this could be uh, paid to the, the trustee as well in, in terms of trust administration, uh, administration fees. Right, right. And, and, and that's actually, in terms of the, the, the beneficial interests under the trust, uh, does it need to be a particular form of trust? Does it have to be revocable? Does the grantor or the settler have to retain an income interest? Is there any qualification here? Right. So in Japan, we have two types of trust. One trust is transparent trust. And uh, the other one is a corporation type trust. So if it's, you know, categorized as a corporation type trust, you know, again, we have to think about the Japanese CFC rule. Right. So we make sure that, you know, the trust uh, is treated as, you know, transparent for Japanese tax purposes. That is the most critical and important point. And to, you know, to make it uh, transparent, uh, we have to identify who the beneficiaries are, you know, beneficiaries must be identified or specified in the trust deed. That, that is a requirement. So in many cases, I, I found, I found, I found, you know, in the past that some foreign trust deed uh, does not specify the, you know, beneficiary yeah. at, at the beginning. But that is treated as a corporation for Japanese tax purposes. Right. So we have to, you know, uh, be very careful. Yeah, okay. Joshua, from your side, uh, presumably a corporate structure, um, you, know, you, you could just as well do a 13R or 13X uh, and still be okay from a, a Philippine standpoint. Is that correct? And the 13R is obviously the one with the, with the company. Yes, that's correct. Uh, I think basically because the difference, main difference between Japan and the Philippines is we are not covered by any CFC uh, uh, rule yet or prohibition. So I guess there's more flexibility in terms of the Philippines in, in setting up these vehicles, yes. In terms of the, the demand, do you see demand growing in the Philippines for international family office for the internationally spread wealth? And if so, is it more Hong Kong or is it emerging Singapore? Where, where do you see the trend? Okay. Um, in the beginning, I, I mentioned that uh, the profile of the Philippine uh, businesses, 80% of the businesses here in, in the country are family-owned or controlled. So with that percentage, the, the probability of a demand for family office would be, would be high. There's a high prospect for, uh, for doing these kinds of family offices. Uh, and in terms of, of the, the preferred place, I would say Hong Kong and Singapore would probably share uh, an equal uh, pie. Right. Uh, but of course, it depends on uh, the attractiveness of, uh, of the vehicles that each of these jurisdictions would offer. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. okay. 